bum bum bottom 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 bum bum
I was being pretty dismissive with the whole concept, and I'm still not won over. I don't think either of us are on Team Gary Chapman at this point. Uh, But I thought I owed it to you and to our listeners to retake it. Um, and, and, and not have anything on in the background. I wasn't watching TV this time. I didn't, uh, uh, have my podcasts going. I focused a hundred percent on taking the love languages test. This is huge. Cause you are so dismissive on any kind of like self-help, uh, you know, lovey dovey kind of stuff. Yeah. I hate it. I hate it. I know you do. Oh, I thought you were reaching out to me to hold my hand, but you were reaching out for your LaCroix. Oh, I'm one thirsty girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do, would you like to know? Yes, the I'm results? dying to know. I'm still not sure. You know, last time I took it, I got two high scores. Mm-hmm. I think I got a 12 and a nine last time. Right? Was it a 12 and a nine or 12 and an eight? I have no it idea. Was somewhere along that. And again, I got a 12 and an eight, uh, but two totally different things. Okay. Um, so, looking at the results of my list, my number 12 highest score love language is physical touch. Aw, that's so nice. He's snuggly. I'm snuggly. Let's read it like that. And then number eight, words of affirmation, which is yeah, which really is what, what I, assumed. I assumed myself, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you go, Lisa. I've done the love language for real. I'm a physical touch, words of affirmation guy. My lowest uh, love language is acts of service, and I get a one. Oh, goodness. I guess I'll cease all housework Immediately. No, don't do that. I've barely even started, so. (laughs) That is true. I do the dishes. He does. He is the dishes doer. I am the cooker, though. I enjoy cooking. All right. Okay. So that revelation, I put it out there. Um, I'm still not 100% sure uh, if I agree with those rankings, uh, and I'm sort of tempted to do another Another go? Yeah, because I feel like depending on your mood, your your love languages are going to be different. Well, in the book, he really didn't encourage like taking a test or doing anything like that. I think that that aspect is really just like a gimmick. The way uh, Gary Chapman encourages you to determine your love languages, your own love languages is what do you find yourself complaining about to your significant other? Or um, when you're down in the dumps, what, what do you want your partner to do for you? So it's really kind of a self-exploration rather than an online quiz, but online quizzes are fun. And who doesn't like taking them? I don't, Lisa. Just you. (laughs) All right. So here we are. X Factors issues one through six. Uh, The storyline doesn't really have a nifty title like the Dark Phoenix saga, but it is gathered in the Marvel Epic Collection as Genesis and Apocalypse. And the title of the first issue is Third Genesis. Okay. So so what were Genesis one and two? Uh, First Genesis, I guess, was Stanley and Jack Kirby's first issue from 1963. Uh, Second Genesis must have been Giant Size X-Men number one in 1975 when Wolverine and Sunfire and those guys joined up thanks to Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. Um, But now here we are. We're back to the original core team of Angel, Beast, Cyclops, Iceman, and Marvel Girl. Yes, Jean Grey is back from the dead and she was never Phoenix in the first place. I reject that. I just straight up reject that as an like as a character thing because there is like her entire progress as a character as Dark Phoenix depends on her determining and and kind of determine yeah. No, sorry, Lisa. Uh, our first episode was a lie. Ugh. It wasn't actually about Scott and Jean, but Scott and Phoenix. 
Uh, according garbage, to, complete garbage. <laughs> according to writer Bob Layton, you know, he he reveals that Phoenix and Jean Grey were actually two separate entities. When Phoenix first arose, uh, she replaced Jean Grey on the team and trapped her body under a cocoon for the Avengers to discover many years later. So everything that we saw in the Dark Phoenix saga didn't involve Jean Grey at all, but an alien doppelganger. That makes zero, zero sense to me. And zero sense to Scott Summers, as we see at the end of issue six. He's like, wait a second. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. I came to X Factor after having read some X-Men books. Um, and I gravitated towards Gene and Scott, like I said in the first episode. I, I really fell for them. So when I bought the back issue of X-Factor number one, which was the first number one comic that I ever acquired in Ooh. my collection, uh, I was super excited to see that Gene Grey was back. I was all about Dark Phoenix not being her and blaming some alien force. So at the time, I loved that. But now... After reading X Factor, I cannot believe that you're ever on the side of Scott Summers. He's complete homo superior (laughs) refuse in this this book. Let's put a pin on that for now, because I have some thoughts. Me too. Many, many thoughts. Okay, so the basic plot of these six issues is the original X-Men are no longer with Professor X because apparently he made Magneto their team leader? Well, their guru. I I think Storm eventually became the real team leader. She and Cyclops had this fight, which was a classic comic book. I can't remember what issue number it was. And Storm beat Cyclops, and Cyclops went off to Alaska with his new bride. With his tail between his legs, I'm sure. Storm is nowhere to be seen in this book. No, no, no. Just a core team. Okay. The originals. So Angel, Iceman, and Beast were the new defenders for a brief stint, but without Cyclops leading them, they felt inadequate. So at the beginning of this book, the X-Men as a team is more or less defunct. Well, the original X-Men. There is still the X-Men. It just doesn't involve these oh. guys who founded the team. Okay. So Cyclops is off in Alaska experiencing marital bliss. Not really. Their relationship is totally on the rocks. Well, he's... That, that first page of X-Factor number one where he's chopping wood with his optic blasts. Yeah. And Madeline Pryor is holding their bouncing baby boy. They seem pretty happy. Or a page. You turn the page and she's like, why are you chopping this wood all of the time? We don't need any more wood. I'm sick of your wood. Get your wood away from me. Sad. They've got a little baby. Brad says it's a boy. There's, they never bring up the sex of the baby or the, no, the, no. Um, the name of the baby. Yeah, in these six issues, the baby is nameless. And not even really a character. She might as well be cradling like a loaf of bread. Now, we do know that that baby is Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, a.k.a. Cable. What, 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 what? But that has nothing to do with this episode. Yeah, so whatever. Loaf of bread. (laughs) Um, Jean Grey is discovered in a cocoon beneath Jamaica Bay. So... Turns out she was not the Phoenix after all. Right. So her return triggers Angel to spend his millions of dollars and reform the core team as X Factor. Uh, And the linchpin being that Scott has to abandon his wife and child. And he does so at the drop of a hat when he hears that Jean Grey is alive. 
Uh, Angel and his old college buddy Cameron Hodge form a mutant hunting hit squad called X-Factor as a guise to recruit and train fellow mutants. And yeah, things don't go so well. Yeah. What do you think about that conceit of like, let's pretend we hate mutants so that we can buddy up to racists and then bring our fellow people under our wing and help them coach them to better mutant kind and humankind. I think that works on the surface because the whole idea of the X-Men and the school is that they're always bringing in these new mutants as they reveal themselves. But now with Professor X gone, they have no way of finding these new mutants. But eventually, like, both all of the members of the team kind of face this moral quandary of is the existence of X Factor actually aggravating yes. the existing The answer is yes, Lisa. It's fanning it the flames of hatred, and it's a terrible concept for a team that was born out of the civil rights movement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it would be as if they're, like, pretending to be... Nazis. Nazis or the KKK or something. They're like, oops. Yeah. Marvel Comics presents KKK. Oh, horrible. <laughs> really, really bad. But they do manage to get two new uh, mutants under their wing. Yeah, they the get, first issue, yeah. Yeah, Rusty Collins and Arthur Maddox. Yeah, Artie. He's so sweet. I love Artie. Artie goes on to have lots of interesting adventures with Fantastic Four, and I would recommend readers take a look at the Jonathan Hickman run. Yay! Artie and Leech, two of my favorite characters. He's not so hot in this run of X-Factor comics. And, you know, Rusty Collins, Lisa, do you know who that is? I have no idea. Rusty Collins is, uh, um, what do they call him in this book? Does he get a name? No. No. He's just Rusty. Well, he eventually becomes Fire Fist. Okay. Fire Fist is played by Julian Dennison in Deadpool oh, 2. Oh, my God. Yeah, Hunt for the Wilder People. I totally see the resemblance. Uh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, Rusty, I can't believe that he goes on beyond this run of books into the New Mutants, and he gets his own spinoff series called The Exterminators. Uh, he hangs out with X-Force for a while, and eventually he joins Magneto's evil team of acolytes. Yeah, that totally makes sense. He's He is facing a lot of, like, self-hatred yeah, big now time. that he's... You know, but when he's rescued by wannabe fake KKK mutants like X Factor, it makes things complicated. Well, because he's totally hot for Jean Grey, as is everybody. Well, you know, we've, we discussed that last episode. Uh, understandable, understandable. Okay, so I'm just going to do a quick review of the five love languages. If you want to get my full feelings about Gary Chapman and the five love languages, you can listen to our previous episode. I go into it deep, I go into it hard. But his main tools for analyzing relationships are the five love languages, which are words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, physical touch, and gifts. He also does the love tank, which Brad and I, we did our love tank exercise at the beginning of this episode. Um, but in the Dark Phoenix Saga, we saw the dark side of the love languages in the way that Mastermind parading as uh, Devonair dashing Jason Wingard used to manipulate Jean Grey using her love languages, which are quality time and physical touch. We also determined that Scott Summers' love languages is acts of service, 
And he's completely at a loss when trying to express his love to Jean Grey because she was made all powerful for the Phoenix Force. So he did, she didn't really need his help yeah, with all, anything. All he's got are laser beams yeah. that come out of his eyes. They 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 can't do much. So, um, uh, but they can't chop a lot of wood. So that's handy. Um, so I found that even with the change of writers, I still feel like these love languages hold true for these characters, and we see how they create further conflict in these six issues of X-Force. X-Factor. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that's true, uh, that that we can say that their love languages are pretty much the same that we see in the Dark Phoenix saga. I will say that because the first issue begins with Scott Summers abandoning his wife, Madeline, and his child, Baby Cable, uh, going back, meeting Jean Grey, learning that his affair that he had with Dark Phoenix, that Mm -hmm. psychic rapport, uh, was BS, or at least was not uh, a rapport with the girl he fell in love with, but some alien creature. Which I reject. It destroys his mind. He loses it in the first X factor. There's that one moment early on in the book where, uh, angel goes like, well, wait, where the heck is Scott? And Scott like wanders to Jamaica Bay and stares out at the ocean where the X plane first crash landed and the Phoenix arose and where Jean gray was cocooned at the bottom of the ocean. And he's got the five o'clock shadow and he looks like a total schlub, a complete mess. He is a ruined human being at the beginning of X Factor, and he remains that way for all six issues that we read. But I feel like he handles the conflict the same way he handled conflict in the Dark Phoenix saga, but the problem is now now his issues are so much bigger because he has a wife and child, and he's dealing with, you know, the loss of the Dark Phoenix and the loss of that psychic rapport, and he just completely withdraws into himself, which I think is something he he did in, in the Dark Phoenix saga as well. What he does not want to do is discuss his conflicts with mm. anybody else. Yeah. He, he feels this need to... He like, really needs Professor X. <laughs> he does. He needs Professor X, and he also needs to... like. His whole strategy for dealing with issues is, I'm not going to talk about it until I have a solution. And the problem with that approach to conflict is he procrastinates further and further in dealing with Madeline and Jean Grey. And eventually, if you avoid a problem like that, they solve themselves in that Madeline just goes completely, she leaves him and just goes completely incommunicado. She disappears. She disappears. He assumes that it's because she's mad at him. It could be, she's in Alaska. It could be that she and her baby were eaten by a bear. Or eaten by something else more terrifying and uh, more arch nemesis-y. Oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah, no, like he is a target for enemies. And when your wife and child disappear, you should probably investigate. Let's ask some questions. And he doesn't. I wonder how much time do you think actually passes between the first issue and sixth issue of this series? I 
feel like it's got to be weeks because Cameron Hodge is able to set up X Factor completely. They go on a couple of adventures, you know, not adventures, but like they serious missions. Yeah, they they go on a couple of missions. So I'm guessing like that it is it's got to be at least a fortnight. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I wish I never read this book as it was intended, you know, month by month because I was already, you know, buying the back issues so I could read them back to back to back like we did here. Right. And it it didn't it doesn't seem too excruciating to stretch out this storyline of Madeline Pryor's back in Alaska. But I imagine over six months when these were published, that storyline had to have felt like an eternity. And reading this book, you know, this week, I came away going Scott Summers is a scumbag. Mm-hmm. He's a, a monster of a human being, not only to his wife and child, but to Jean Grey and every single member of the X-Files. And I came X-Files? Away, oh, gosh. We're all misspeaking today. This is terrible. He, he's mean to everybody on X-Factor. And he, he, you, I came away going, why did I ever like this guy in the first place? And I didn't necessarily feel that way in the Dark Phoenix saga, even though some of his um, actions and his thought balloons were questionable and, you know, obviously melodramatic. But in X-Factor, he's a straight-up garbage human being. I think that seeing Jean Grey continue to love him, even through his jerky foibles, kind of endears us to him. But now when he's treating Jean Grey like total trash and she's finally withdrawing from him like there's nothing good about him left I feel like there's there's nothing to help us continue to like Scott Summers the only positive that you can say about his character within these six issues is that when action happens when there's a fight sequence when Tower shows up or they have to rescue Rusty from the military he is a tactician and he's written that way. And not only is he written that way, but you hear Angel and Beast go, oh, I'm so glad Scott's leading us again because we were helpless without him as the new defenders. <laughs> but now he can go, turn left, turn right, and we listen, and we win the day. Right, and that that's pretty much the, the um, first mission where he goes to rescue Rusty Collins or retrieve Rusty Collins. That's the only time we see him happy in this entire book. Yeah, yeah. He's insufferable. Because they, you know, the team gets into a pinch where they're trapped underneath all of this rubble and he's literally the only person who can help. Which when you consider that his love language is acts of service, he finds that tremendously fulfilling. So, so, um, and he kind of, lives off of that high of, well, the X Factor is helping and I am of value to X Factor to kind of sustain him as he neglects his wife, Madeline, and neglects his friendship with Jean Grey. Right, okay. So, um, yeah, all right, Cyclops. That's Cyclops. How are we feeling about uh, Marvel Girl, Jean Grey, in this? I totally admire the way that she handles Scott being such a jerk because (laughs) at every opportunity she reaches out to him to ask him what's going on. We need to talk. And of course, like every time being an (laughs) X-Men makes it so inconvenient to handle any kind of 
emotional homework because every second somebody says, we need to talk, then all of a sudden, X Factor, we have a new mission. Or Warren walks in and is like, hey, what's up? So, Yeah, well, that, that first time that Warren interrupts their very first conversation, yeah. when they reunite, Angel says, hey, Jean's uh, through that door. I'm going to hang out here. Go talk to her. Right. And it reaches the, the, the climax of that conversation is Scott is about to tell Jean what's going on in his life. And it's five minutes maybe after <laughs> he walked through that door, Angel opens the door again and interrupts them. Right. Knowing full well that this has got to be a tremendous moment in their lives because Angel wants that gene. Yeah, he has serious alter ulterior motives, which I didn't see at first. I'm like, wow, what a great friend Warren is. He was, really wants to talk, <laughs> uh, encourages Scott Summers to, yeah. to talk to Gene Gray. But then when like we find out, it's, oh, actually he's putting the moves on Gene Gray, I'm like, ah, Warren, you weasel. It's so funny, uh, listeners. Lisa was reading this book a couple days ago and she hadn't gotten to that point when Angel makes his move. And we were talking about what a swell fella uh, Warren was. And I had reached that point already. And uh, boy, I showed a lot of restraint, not ruining <laughs> what uh, a, a skeezy dude Warren also is. Yeah, especially considered he's still in a relationship with Candy Southern. Oh, can we talk about Candy Southern real oh, quick? please. First off, who knew that that character from the Dark Phoenix Saga would come back in X Factor? Six years later, Candy Southern is still around with Angel? And that's like a serious commitment, like to be together six years. Well, first off, I don't understand the timeline of comics. Oh, yeah. If, if it, like six years in comic book timeline, it's like dog years. It could have been just like a couple of months. Oh, okay. Uh, second, though, Candy Southern, commitment? Mm, there's some construction workers working on their house, Angel leaves with X Factor and Candy Southern's like, oh no, I'm with a bunch of construction workers. That's no good. Or is it? I think, uh, well, these construction workers found her so distractingly hot that they got themselves into some physical danger. Yeah, they fell off their scaffolding. And I think her love language must be words of affirmation because she, she, got, she clearly got a little charge out of being admired by those right. construction sure, workers. Sure. And I'm sure with Warren going off and, you know, doing his time with X Factor, that her love tank is getting a little low. Super low, because uh, she never comes back after the first yeah, issue. Yeah, we don't see, <laughs> see or hear from her again. But I'm sure she's very happy with her construction workers. Now, Lisa, you were actually saying that you admire Marvel Girl for how she dealt with Scott's distance. Absolutely, because she gives him ample opportunity to open up to her, to explain <laughs> his distant behavior. He's, he starts getting snappy. He starts He's just brooding all of the time. And when she sees that he's not going to open up to her, and she just decides to move on and she starts taking classes. She wants to turn X Factor into a real way of doing some social work. You know what's interesting about her character and this ridiculous plot uh, that Bob Layton has created where she was never the Phoenix, right? right? Is if you look at it from her point of view, she was up in space in a you know piloting the uh, blackbird right. saving her teammates 
was going to die, and then this cosmic force, the Phoenix, interrupts her life, uh, imprisons her in a cocoon, and then lives her life. And so when she is resurrected, there's all, all this adventure, all of these relationships have progressed beyond her without her. Right. And I, I can't even imagine what that experience is actually like. And so even though as a fan, I'm disappointed that the Phoenix and Jean Grey are determined to be two separate entities, I, I think psychologically that's pretty interesting. Positively. And the fact that nobody is willing to fill her in about what happened while she was in that cocoon, she is just forced to jump to her own conclusions. And so she starts feeling like, well, clearly Scott fell in love with the Phoenix Mm. and now the Phoenix is gone and he doesn't want me, this person who is lesser than. Right. She's even lost her ability to read minds. They've lost, she's lost her psychic powers and she's less useful right. than she's been in the past because before nobody could get the drop on the X-Men because she could read their thoughts when right. you know and so she feels less useful and so she starts going like well Scott doesn't love me anymore because of this reason or that reason and and her conclusions are very logical Right. Yeah, you know, how do you feel about the other X Factor team members at this point? You know, at the beginning, when they're keeping their distance because they want Scott to break the news to Jean. So it's not our place to tell her that, hey, he's married. Hey, he has a kid. Uh, so we'll let him deal with that. And then, you know, you learn that Angel's also uh, macking on her, so it's not his place to ruin that. But what about Beast and Iceman at some point? Like, by issue three, come on, guys. I think that this is the issue of having a bunch of dude friends around. Because, guys, I hate to make, you know, huge generalizations, but (laughs) men are not willing to, like, take the flack. Like, if some... If Storm were here, then Jean Grey would have someone advocating for her, somebody on her side to say, you know, your boy has been his has has been hiding things from you and I need to speak about it. Right. right. And but all of the guys are just like, well, this will clearly just resolve itself and it's none of my business anyway. So I'm like I feel like it really seems like Jean Grey doesn't have any true friends on the team because a true friend would say, you know, the issue with Scott is he's married, he has a kid, and he wants both. He wants to have Madeline and he wants to have Jean Grey. Right. And, you know, what's what's hilarious is we get done with these six issues. And while I was revisiting it, I thought – Okay, that's a full arc. We're gonna at least get that uh, that awkwardness out into the open. But by the end of issue six, you know they battle Apocalypse, their new great big bad villain, and uh, nope, sorry, still no resolution. Gene still doesn't know about <laughs> Madeline. Scott still hiding his true feelings from her. On to the next uh, action. I actually, piece. I actually cheated and read a little bit ahead, and 
what happens is Jean eventually just figures it out on her own. <laughs> like she she's confronts the other guys on the team and is like, dudes, what is the deal with Scott? Yeah, is yeah. it because he has another woman? And then the way they skirt around direct ooh, questions, ooh, ooh, ooh. she like she's got to have a little bit of psychic residue left over in that brain of hers because she's like, is it because she has another woman and they waffle, waffle, waffle? It's got to be worse than that. Is it because he has a wife? And they're like, waffle, waffle, waffle. And she's like, that's got to be it. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that is at the end of issue six, Scott does think he sees an outline of right. the phoenix within her telekinetic powers. So maybe there is some residue. And guess what? He doesn't bring it up to anybody else. God damn this guy. He just keeps it to himself. <laughs> uh, like, to me, you can compare one-to-one, -one, like, the way that Scott deals with a conflict, and then the way that Jean deals with a conflict. So, for example, the moral quandary of the X Factor as an idea. So, Jean Grey, after they go to the Faraday School, and they confront that little boy who is faking having psychic powers mm. so, that, um, so that the kids at school stop teasing him and bullying right, him. Right, right. He uses... Uh, the idea of the mutant X-Factor gene inside him as a defensive tool, like back off or I'm going to mess you up. As a way to create fear yeah. amongst his peers. Yeah. And Jean Grey sees that and she goes, oh my goodness, maybe this X-Factor thing is doing the exact opposite of the mission of the X-Men. Right. Um, and she brings it up with the team on the very next page. Right. On the very next page, she goes like, we need to rethink what we're doing. And then later, Scott has the same moral doubts, and he goes, like, it, they were all working out in the gym, and he goes, like, we're living this double life, and I feel like it is causing us to lose who we are. And he just has that thought in a thought bubble and never brings it up. That's what's so interesting about comic books, right? Especially at this period in time when the thought balloon was this tried and true tool that you can have these massive emotional revelations that are only happening inside his brain. <laughs> We're seeing growth going on in Scott's head, but that thought balloon is never followed up with a word balloon. And if it is followed up with a word balloon, it's speaking to something completely different. But for Jean Grey, it does. Mm. She's very open with her emotions. When she feels a doubt, she expresses it immediately. And Scott is the complete opposite. When he has a doubt, he keeps it to himself and he just broods on it. And he uses the fact that he's trying to solve all of these emotional issues within himself as a an excuse to neglect people, to neglect mm -hmm. Madeline, to neglect his son, to neglect Jean Grey, and to neglect his relationships with the other members of the X-Men because they're all there trying to help him and offering him advice, and he's going, no, I'm going to solve this within myself by myself. It's so interesting. you know, X-Factor, when it was created by Bob Layton, who was uh, an illustrator himself. He would go on to do some really awesome Iron Man comics. Uh, or maybe he had actually done some Iron Man comics by this point. I can't remember. Uh, when he came up with the idea for this spinoff 
uh, and the the duality of uh, mutants using racism as a veil right. to their actual motives. Uh, he loved that idea. Now he was only on this comic book for five issues and an annual. And then Louise Simonson comes on with issue number six and immediately starts finding a way to get rid of the core concept of X Factor and turn it into basically just another X-Men book. Now, it takes Louise Simonson many issues. I want to say well into issues 30 through 40 before they eventually get rid of this false team of mutant haters. But I mean, you see her starting to retcon more or less immediately because the last panel of issue six is Scott going like, well, maybe Jean Grey and the Dark Phoenix or the Phoenix Force are one in the same. Right, right, right. So she more or less immediately goes, like I did when I saw, when I read his explanation of the Dark Phoenix, Phoenix, I'm like, yeah, that's garbage. I don't buy that for a second. (laughs) And you know, what's so funny is that they weren't sure if they were going to bring back Jean Grey for X Factor. Oh, wow. And the early publicity images showed the, you know, Angel, Iceman, Beast, Cyclops, and then a mysterious female blank figure, (laughs) like an outline of a female form. Uh And at one point, Jean Grey was possibly not going to be resurrected, and the female member of X Factor was going to be Dazzler. No way! (laughs) And you, like... Talk about, like, a useless... Hey, hey, we're not here to crap on Dazzler. Dazzler's kind of interesting, especially later on in comics. But She's what we literally saw, like, my power is the power of distraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she was Jubilee before Jubilee came around. Right. Uh, but can you imagine what this comic book would have been with Dazzler as the female lead? Totally different concept. Except for probably Warren would be putting the moves on her. Yeah, yeah. Poor yeah. Candy. There'd still be some sort of uh, romantic triangle. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, could you see Scott and Dazzler getting together? Ooh, no. I could no. see Beast, maybe. Hank McCoy does have Vera, mm-hmm. who is his punk rock girlfriend, who has a weird... Haircut. Haircut. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, she takes the asymmetrical alternative lifestyle haircut to a whole new level, because she, like, completely shaves her head down to, like... Just skin. It's, it's very eighties. It's 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 glam punk. Yep, and she has a huge affection for Elvis Costello. Uh, obviously, rocker. Bob Lane loves Elvis Costello because he comes up multiple times throughout this book. Yeah, but it's always Vera who brings it up. Oh, Hank brings it up too, but I guess that's because Hank's been hanging out with Vera. I can see like the fact that Vera is in love with Hank and that Vera is in love with Elvis Costello because they both have like a dweeby vibe. While we're on the topic of Hank, can we mention another retcon that happens? (sighs) There is, uh, uh, he gets kidnapped by an evil scientist. Dr. Maddox. Dr. Maddox. And uh, Dr. Maddox, he's trying to cure the mutant gene uh, and rid the world of this genetic plague. They were former colleagues, They right? were, right. Um, I think they had some encounters either when they were dealing as the new defenders or when Beast was on the Avengers. I can't remember. Which. I think it was, I think they, they both worked for the Brand Corporation, maybe? Yeah. Good close reading, Lisa. I Thank have you. no memory of that. Okay. Uh, now, Dr. Maddox has a son named Artie. 
and he's great, as I mentioned earlier in this episode. I love Artie, but Maddox does not like his son being a mutant, so he's trying to cure that, and he's going to use some of the concepts that Hank has come up with, and he's going to test that out on Beast, and he gets rid of Beast's beautiful blue hair, returning to... Uh, Hank McCoy to that form that we saw back in 1963. He still has the blue hair on his head, and I'm assuming downstairs too. <laughs> probably, probably. But what the did you think about that? The carpet matches the drapes. How did you feel as you know somebody who's not as maybe uh, involved in the history of these characters? I hate it with oh, a passion. It's super lame. It's not cool at all. But in, it does help in the fact that as part of X Factor, he has to appear not to be a mutant. He has to appear as human. But I did like them trying to, like, get around and sneak peeks yeah. in the back door. Angel's always wearing a backpack to hide his wings. Yep. This massive, ridiculous backpack does not work. You still before, stick out. Before X Factor, did the X Men have like a celebrity level of recognition? No, no, no. Okay, no. so they're no, always I mean, they, kind of on the down. They had it in the sense that uh, who are these uh, superpowered freaks? Right. You know, they were recognized as uh, evil mutants. Which well, actually, I'm saying like, how come they're not being recognized? Because even with his wings on, he still looks like Warren. <laughs> You're Gray so distracted still by that backpack. Same. Now, at one point in the first issue, when Reed Richards from the Fantastic Four calls Angel and says, hey, Gene's alive. Meet me at the airport. Mm -hmm. Angel swoops in and the public sees Angel as a mutant and they start hurling cans and bottles at him. And Mr. Fantastic stretches out, blocks their projectiles and says, we got to get out of here. The age-old question in Marvel Comics is, is why does society hate on mutants, these genetic monsters, but love dudes like the Avengers and Fantastic Four who still have these crazy and bizarre superpowers? Oh, my goodness. That is a good question. Because maybe, like, the other superheroes got their powers by accident, I guess? Well, I don't know. I think it's real obvious, and it's a very human thing, right? Okay. Uh, you know, that person's black. I don't like him because he's black. Uh, they're mutants. They're a genetic problem. I, I fear the idea that, that, that their blood could somehow infect my blood. It's straight up racism. Right. Reed Richards, he's cool. Uh, media has accepted him. We've given him the thumbs up. Fantastic Four, they're celebrities. They're true Marvel celebrities. But the X-Men and mutants, they're a plague. They, you know, they're growing. The, the, the homo superior is taking over the planet and we could be replaced by him. Right. It's fear of the unknown. Right. Where I think the Avengers and uh, the Fantastic Four, within the context of the Marvel Universe, it's like, why would we be scared of the military and why would we be scared of the Kardashians? Oh, yeah. I guess also because there's a level of aspiration to these other heroes. Like, I could conceivably become someone like Reed Richards or I could conceivably become someone like Iron Man where, like... You could never become a mutant. Either you're a mutant or you're not a mutant. And so... But my child could become a mutant. And that would be horrible. And he might not be one of those cool-looking Cyclops mutants. He might be like Artie. 
you know, and a, a Morlock who has to go under the ground and hide from society, polite society. That's something that's always bothered me about the X-Men because it seems like all of their powers in one way or another are useful. But, like, if the mutant gene is, like, this thing that causes these outrageous mutations, like, somebody has a mutation where it's just, like, you know, my butthole is like rubber bands or like... <laughs> Wait, what? I have no idea. What does that even mean, Lisa? Like Don't that, show me. Like like that your butthole is just super stretchy. I mean, that sounds amazing <laughs> to tell you the truth. But I mean, like, you know, you have some kind of mutation of like, well, it's just like, you know, my armpits smell like jelly beans. Well, here's the thing. That, that concept, that idea of the useless mutation has been explored and it is explored... A lot with the Marauders and the Morlocks, the people who are not given the uh, the cushy, useful mutations, but yeah. are, are real problematic mutations that like we have to hide worm from. Yeah, and bulk. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's I comic fans who bring up that question. Uh, I feel like are missing the whole point uh, of the the concept of X Men and how racism doesn't make sense. Right. And and I like to see how like the interpretation of X-Men have has evolved to not just include people of different races, but include, um, you know, like LGBT sexuality and gender, this idea that you have to come out as a mutant Mm -hmm. and you have to learn to accept yourself for who you are. Right. Right. So uh, we're coming down to the end of the episode, but before we go, uh, we have to talk about the big bad apocalypse. If these issues of X Factor are known for anything, it's the introduction of this character. He would go on to become a major threat in the comics, and he's now even had his own film. Yeah. The less said about that, the better. Yeah. So apocalypse, what do you think, Lisa? He was pretty ineffectual. <laughs> he had his alliance and Oh, let's like the first off, the Alliance of Evil are the lamest group of bad guys ever. Tower, Frenzy, Stinger. Ugh. <laughs> they are no brotherhood of evil mutants. No, and um and like once you so the the leader of the alliance is treated like this specter, like yeah, who the, could it be? Yeah, the master. The master. And can I say Originally, it wasn't supposed to be Apocalypse. Apocalypse was created by Louise Simonson. Bob Layton was building to the reveal that the master was actually the owl from the old Daredevil comic books. Oh, I have no idea who that is. He's a a, a gangster who is very foul-like, as in the bird, the owl. Okay. And they were going to reinvent that character as something really vicious and nasty, supposedly. Uh-huh. But then Louise Simonson comes on board at the end of issue five and goes, no, 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 no. I don't like that. We're doing Apocalypse. This idea that there is a mutant who's many, many years old, ancient, that is uh, crafting Homo Superior as a survival of the fittest. Only the strongest mutants will remain on this planet by the end. It may, the setup makes more sense for it to be like a gang leader type guy because it is so connected with, you know, drug trafficking Mm. and this idea of Mike Nolan. Oh, the junkie that Scott is such a jerk to. Yeah, that's another contrast between Jean Grey and 
Psychops because Jean Grey leads with compassion. She really tries to understand Mike Nolan and dealing with his heroin addiction and now how he uses heroin to keep himself from hurting others because the use of heroin dampens his powers and his powers are um, kind of upset mutants. Yeah, they disturb the balance and you have a power freak out, basically. Yeah, so it increases your power to the point of diminishing returns. Like, mm-hmm. so Tower can become so huge that he can't fit or function, function and, or, um, Cyclops' yeah. laser beams just go nutty. Sh- go all over the place for some reason. He can't control them or, or yeah. that it's kind of weird. thing. Yeah. It's a, a little undefinable, but anyway. Yeah, so. Scott's yeah. a jerk. Scott's a jerk. Yeah, and Scott is like, a druggie's a druggie, a junkie's a junkie. <laughs> so he's just garbage. Yeah, I thought you were supposed to be the master of empathy, X-Men. Come on. I don't know. So, all right. And then Apocalypse shows up. They have a little bit of a skirmish. Apocalypse basically just says at the end of issue six, we're going to meet again. And uh, you're not going to like it. Bye-bye. <laughs> Apocalypse does touch on one of the themes that seems to return and return in this X-Men storyline, starting with the Dark Phoenix, this idea that love is what makes the X-Men strong. The fact that they're so loyal to each other is what allows them to defeat whatever foe comes their way. And we saw that in the conflict between Jean Grey and the Shi'ar Hmm. when they determined that she wasn't capable of controlling the Phoenix Force. Mm. And even though the X-Men did see where the Shi'ar was coming from, and Jean Grey did just so much damage, <laughs> just killing billions of people, but they prioritized their love of her to defend her, and ultimately they stick beside her even through, through the Phoenix Force leaving her. They, they are always staying true to her, and that's what makes that's the idea that makes X-Men strong. This idea comes up again with the storyline with Rusty Collins and Arthur and the fact that um, that they were not handling Rusty Collins' um, angst with dealing with being a mutant, and Jean Grey was trying to push him. Right, right. Um, but ultimately, at the end of that, and... Uh, Rusty was always discriminating against Arthur because Arthur, like, not only does he have mutant powers, but he also looks like a mutant. He looks so different. Yeah. And, and Rusty uses, uses that as a reason to hate on poor little Arthur Maddox. So unfair. But at the end of that storyline, they decide, oh, it's togetherness. We need to deal with our problems together, and that's going to help us. So the uh, apocalypse brings up, like, the opposite thesis like um, Mike Nolan's love for his wife, Susie, is ultimately what destroys him and ultimately what kills him and Susie. So it's the idea that actually, no, love makes you compromisable and love makes you weak. So he kind of brings this counterpoint to the theme of the X-Men that that is barely touched on, but interesting. Mm. And I would love to see that idea come back as Apocalypse comes back. Mm. Well, I don't know, Lisa. <laughs> uh, so we... I might be giving X-Factor way too much credit. <laughs> I've been known to do such uh, things. All right. We just crossed our 50-minute mark. That means uh, our therapy session must be up. 
How are we feeling, Lisa? X Factor. Where, how do we want to close this episode out? Well, let's reflect on what we've learned from Scott and Jean's relationship in X Factor and how we can use this to improve our relationship, our, our marital relationship. Uh, Scott's a really great example of what not to do in every scenario. Right. Uh, I, we talked a little bit about this after the Dark Phoenix Saga episode, but certainly the idea of not bottling up all your dark thoughts <laughs> uh, month after month after month. That I need, you know, I have learned through our marriage that anytime I'm upset, uh, I tend to be like Scott, where I will shut down and be quiet and process my own anger uh, Alone. alone. Brad is a real brooder. But when you do that, when you behave like Scott, uh, it will eventually erupt. And of course, because now, like, the partner is. When you're not communicating and you're acting, you know, hostily or you're acting sad, all the partner is left to do, all when you're in your broody state, all all I do is go like, well, what have I done to create this angst? This, I have to kind of extrapolate from my limited knowledge what could possibly be the problem. And it ultimately ends with me criticizing myself because everything is about me. <laughs> I tend to be more like, Jean Grey, where like I see a problem and I like I can sometimes attempt to bottle it up like this is not an appropriate no, time to address needle. this, but I am a big time needler. <laughs> I I tend to bring up issues right away. And for Jean Grey, that that did like that did create some problems when she was dealing with Rusty Collins because she was in this place where she was trying to coach Rusty and she was bringing up all of these problems and she was being overly critical of him and it was causing him to lash out. And right. Scott was like, Hey, you could probably back off yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It's funny reading, uh, X factor again and discovering that my boy Cyclops is a bit of a jerk. A and real piece actually, of trash. Not a bit of a jerk is a real asshole. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a fair definition of how he behaves in this book, but where, in the Dark Phoenix Saga, I recognized some of those issues, but I chalked it up to, oh, well, that's just the melodrama of comic books. Reading his behavior in X Factor, one, I did see a lot of myself in the sense of like bottling up anger and frustration and confusion. Right. Uh, and I, I'm coming to grips with the fact that maybe I don't like this character and I understand why people... Uh, in the comic book fandom community, really trash on Scott Summers. I think he's in desperate need of a real come-to-Jesus moment and um, a time of self-reflection to to really help him get over some of these issues, learning how to communicate and seeing that it is worth reaching out to people to help solve his conflicts. And and I'll be interested to see if this ever happens. <laughs> well, you know, let's let's we're gonna explore the future here real soon. Um, but I loved rereading X Factor as 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 painful as I found it to be at times, and how it has made me reevaluate my love of Scott Summers. But I gotta say that I felt like Bob Layton's 
dialogue was on track with what Chris Claremont was doing six years previously. I did miss the superfluous thought balloons. I Like the exposition after exposition after exposition? Not necessarily that, but the fact that, that you see the thoughts of everybody in every single panel. Uh, I did not miss that. And <laughs> Bob Layton is an artist himself, and he definitely eases back on the amount of words on the page. Uh, but I actually think that when issue six happens and Louise Simonson comes on board, it gets even better. Yeah, she definitely takes some of his digressions and puts the story back on track. Now, art-wise, I came away with a tremendous appreciation for Jackson Geis. I love his facial expressions. And in some cases, or at least for certain panels, I almost think he's better than John Byrne. <gasps> now, of course, he's nowhere near as consistent as John <laughs> Byrne. And the art in these X Factor issues fluctuate tremendously. In fact, uh, one of them is actually illustrated by Keith Pollard. Um, but I love, I love Jackson Geis's art, especially that aforementioned panel where Scott is looking out across Jamaica Bay, looking super schlubby with his five o'clock shadow. Uh, that's probably going to end up being the image for this episode. And there's another beautiful image of Jean Grey, like a, like a close up facial shot where she's really considering like, oh my goodness, why is Scott being so different you yeah, know. yeah. He's good at the like the like just kind of cap- capturing an emotional moment with a close up. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So uh, I I I want to now own all these pages, or at least certain pages from this run. And I'm wondering if I we can achieve that goal at a relatively cheap price because not a lot of love is thrown to the first six issues of X Factor. I'm down. Hit up eBay. <laughs> I've already started looking at it, Lisa. <gasps> That is not a surprise. (laughs) Next week, the comic book couples counseling podcast will return with another entry in the romantic adventures of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. Brad, where will we be joining them next? All right. So as we jumped ahead six years from the Dark Phoenix saga to X Factor, we will take another leap in time with the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, uh, written by Scott Lobdell and illustrated by Jean Ha. This miniseries was originally published in 1994, so almost 10 years after this one, when Scott and Jean got married, and this book will be following their honeymoon. Uh, If you want to join along with us, these four issues were just republished in the X-Men Cyclops and Phoenix Past and Future Collection, which also includes the sequel miniseries, as well as some goofy backup material. Fun! That trade will set you back uh, $29.99 at list price. Cool. Well, I certainly look forward to it. So, Brad... Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on most social medias at MouthDork. Lisa, what about you? Where can we send our affirmations for you? At Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. All right, folks. Keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy doo 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 do